Thank you, Cathy, for the invite and the introduction. And of course, thank you all for coming. Uh, before I begin, I'd like to note that given the time period in which they were written, the language of some of the sources I'm dealing with is, shall we say, somewhat awkward to 21st century ears. Where possible, I'll try to use modern terminology, but several of the quotes I make or titles I refer to will feature language that was considered respectful at the time, but isn't anymore. For example, Negro. Also, I don't speak French, so please bear with me if I mispronounce names. With that out of the way, let's talk about C.L.R. James and the Haitian Revolution. The Haitian Revolution began on the 22nd of August 1791 as a slave uprising in what was then the French colony of Saint-Domingue. It ended on the 1st of January 1804 with the declaration of Haiti as an independent state, the first state in history to ban both slavery and the slave trade unconditionally from the first day of its existence. The revolution was the largest slave revolt since the rebellion Spartacus led against the Roman Republic in 73 to 71 BCE. Not only that, it is the only successful black slave revolt in the history of the world and had major ripple effects, quickening the demise of the transatlantic slave trade and enabling further steps in the Atlantic revolutions of the 18th and 19th centuries. While it was published over 80 years ago now in 1938, the preeminent account of the Haitian Revolution is still this, the Black Jacobins, Toussaint Louverture and the San Domingo Revolution by C.L.R. James. I'm not exaggerating when I say that Black Jacobins put the Haitian Revolution on the map. At the time, it was not normal to see the Haitian Revolution as at least as significant an event as the American and French revolutions that also occurred in the late 1700s. Now that's an increasingly common position. For those who don't know, the Jacobins were a radical Republican political club in France that enjoyed political ascendancy during the French Revolution. Hopefully it'll become apparent over the course of this talk why James chose Black Jacobins as the title for his book. So then, who was C.L.R. James? He was a Marxist, humanist and pan-Africanist writer and activist born in Trinidad in 1901. In Trinidad, he received a very broad education at the Queen's Royal College from 1910 to 1918, where he then taught English and history for several years. He arrived in England in 1932 and worked as a journalist, including as a cricket correspondent for The Guardian. He became acquainted with Marxist writings and methods in England and joined the Trotskyist movement around 1933. In 1936, he published Minty Alley, the first novel by a black West Indian to be published in England, and wrote a three-act West End play about the Haitian Revolution, also titled The Black Jacobins, starring the legendary actor and singer Paul Robeson. During this time, James's friend Harry Spencer gave him the money he needed to go to the archives in France for a few months to conduct his research on the Haitian Revolution. In 1939, James came to the US and joined the Socialist Workers' Party. 
SWP, no relation to the British group of the same name. During this time, he participated in a famous set of exchanges within the American Trotskyist movement on the question of whether black Americans could be regarded as a nation within the US with the right to self-determination, with Trotsky and James leading more towards accepting that position, uh, Max Chapman and Ernest Rice McKinney taking a more sceptical view of the matter. There were heated debates in the SWP during and after the Soviet invasions of Poland and Finland in 1939-40. Then several SWP members grouped around Schatzman left to form a new organisation called the Workers' Party. These heterodox Trotskyists, as opposed to the orthodox Trotskyists who stayed in the SWP under James Cannon's leadership, came to view the Stalinist USSR as an exploitative class society that should not be given even critical support. They instead decided that socialists had to support the international working class against both the capitalist and Stalinist camps, hence why that political tradition is known as third camp socialism. Best summed up in the famous Cold War slogan, neither Washington nor Moscow, but international socialism. James went with Chapman into the Workers' Party, where he and the philosopher Rea Dunayevskaya headed a minority tendency known as the Johnson Forest Tendency from their pen names. Uh, James split from the Workers' Party in 1947. According to James, this was because he believed Chapman's political concerns to be insufficiently revolutionary for the situation at hand. He briefly rejoined the SWP, only to leave again in 1950. After that point, James left the Trotskyist movement altogether. He had a varied literary and scholarly career, including a curious stint as a high dignitary of sorts of the People's National Movement, which was the governing party of Trinidad from 1956 to 86, uh, founded by his former student, Eric Williams. Eventually, James passed away in Brixton, London in 1989. So that's our brief background picture of James himself. What motivated him to write Black Jacobins? Most pressingly, he found none of the existing books on the Haitian Revolution satisfactory, especially as they gave little attention to the role of the slaves themselves. For this reason, Black Jacobins is sometimes referred to as a history from below, though I'd argue that label draws something of a false dichotomy. Whilst Black Jacobins certainly underscores how the masses in Haiti and France shaped events, James also spotlights notable figures who played decisive roles, most obviously the Black Haitian revolutionary leader Toussaint Louverture, who James, approvingly paraphrasing the French historian Alphonse de Beauchamp, describes as, quote, one of the most remarkable men of a period rich in remarkable men. James also wrote the book with an eye on the contemporary context of anti-colonial struggle in Africa and the Caribbean. Throughout the 1930s, he'd been an active campaigner for such causes as the independence of the West Indies and opposition to the Italian invasion and occupation of Ethiopia. In other words, James wanted his book to relay the historical significance of a great black African slave revolution, 
thereby underscoring the kind of world-changing agency that exploited and oppressed blacks have exercised in the past and could exercise again in the present. If that's why James wrote Black Jacobins, what can we say about the Haitian Revolution itself? For those who don't know, Haiti is part of a large Caribbean island called Hispaniola, which had been controlled by Spain from the 1490s until the 17th century. After years of French buccaneers settling on it, Spain ceded the western part of the island to France, who named it Saint-Domingue in 1625. In Spanish, San Domingo, the name James uses most frequently, and for that reason, the name I use most frequently. The Spanish-controlled part of the island was known as Santo Domingo, and eventually became the modern-day Dominican Republic, whose capital is still called Santo Domingo. So, to set the scene, in 1789, there were approximately 25,000 whites, 30,000 free black people, and 500,000 slaves in what is now Haiti. The slaves worked on sugar and coffee plantations, and James pulls no punches discussing the horrors they went through. As well as the wanton death and cruelty the slaves face packed into ships' galleries from Africa to the Caribbean, James vividly describes the brutality and terrorism the San Domingo slavers employ to keep the slaves in line, whipping them, mutilating them, burning them alive, filling them with gunpowder and blowing them up, fastening them near ant or wasp nests, and many other sickening forms of torture. The rate of death among the slaves was so high that the French had to import new slaves constantly, such that two-thirds of the San Domingo slave population at any given time were African-born. Nonetheless, a spirit of resistance remained strong. The slaves would secretly hold midnight voodoo celebrations, where they would sing a song in Kikongo, which James translates into English as, We swear to destroy the whites and all they possess. Let us die rather than fail to keep this vow. As James goes on to say, quote, The colonists knew this song and tried to stamp it out and the voodoo cult with which it was linked, in vain. For over 200 years, the slaves sang it at their meetings, as the Jews in Babylon sang of Zion, and the Bantu today sing in secret the national anthem of Africa. Slaves who escaped and formed bands of free men in the woods and forests were known as Maroons. There were attempted slave revolts before the Haitian Revolution, including that of the Maroon leader, Macandal, who spent six years building up an organisation of black slaves to poison the white slave owners before he was captured and burned at the stake in 1758. As for the rest of the San Domingo population, James notes several significant racial and socioeconomic groups. First, the big whites, meaning the planters as well as the wealthy merchants and agents of the maritime bourgeoisie in the towns. Second, the small whites, meaning the artisans, lawyers, notaries, and other subordinate classes in the white population. And third, the royalist bureaucracy, composed of Frenchmen who governed the island. As James puts it, quote, here then was the first great division, that between great whites and small whites, 
with the bureaucracy balancing between and encouraging the small rights. Nothing could assuage or solve this conflict. The moment the revolution begins in France, these two will spring at each other and fight to a finish." End quote. Additionally, there were the free blacks and free mulattoes, that is, mixed race people, who were known collectively as free people of colour. They were better educated and more literate than the slave population, often trained as artisans and frequently served in either the army or the administration of the plantations. However, as James notes, quote, the advantages of being white were so obvious that race prejudice against the Negroes permeated the minds of the mulattoes, who so bitterly resented the same thing from the whites, end quote. James places the Haitian Revolution of 1791 in relation to the French Revolution of 1789. In 1788 in France, the monarchy decided to restabilize the state's finances by convening the Estates General, uh, which was a kind of parliament at that point dormant since 1614, consisting of the three estates, meaning the social orders or classes that made up the realm, namely the clergy, the first estate, the nobility, the second estate, and most importantly, the remaining 98% of the people, the third estate. The Estates General convened on the 5th of May, 1789. The monarchy wanted each estate to vote separately, and the nobility stood firm on this. But the third estate, which by this point included the French bourgeoisie, insisted on the estates voting together. Furious at feudal privilege and its stifling effect on France's development, the Third Estate declared themselves the National Assembly on the 17th of June, 1789. It refused to dissolve, and on the 14th of July, the Paris masses, having armed themselves, stormed the Bastille, a prison in France and major symbol of royal authority. By the end of July, bourgeois municipal councils and militias had taken power in most French cities. A massive peasant revolt swept France in late July and early August, destroying enclosures, claiming back common land, and rebelling against paying tithes and feudal dues. On the night of the 4th of August, the National Assembly drew up a decree to abolish feudal privileges and proclaim equality before the law. On the 26th of August, the National Assembly adopted the famous Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen, which famously reads, quote, men are born and remain free and equal in rights, end quote. King Louis XVI refused to ratify the decrees and the declaration, but on the 5th of October, about six or 7,000 women and then 20,000 National Guardsmen marched on Versailles from Paris and forced the king to ratify the decrees. Famously, these events would culminate in the new national convention's abolition of the monarchy on the 21st of September 1792, and King Louis XVI's execution by guillotine on the 21st of January 1793. Importantly for present purposes, an ocean away, the people of San Domingo keenly felt these political shockwaves. The General Assembly in Paris passed legislation to grant limited local autonomy to the colonies, including a provision calling for 
all local proprietors to be active citizens. The white colonial assembly in San Domingo chose to interpret this provision as applicable to the planter classes only, leading to a mulatto rebellion in October 1790. With the assistance of French troops, the rebellion was put down by local planter militias, and in February 1791, the mulatto leaders were publicly executed. Under pressure from the Abbé Grégoire and others in light of these events, on the 15th of May 1791, the French National Assembly granted political rights to all free people of colour born of free mothers and fathers. Whilst this itself was a major compromise that would have extended political rights to only a few hundred free blacks and mulattoes, the San Domingo white colonists furiously resisted even that. But what of the slaves? If I may quote James Lent, quotes, they had heard of the revolution and had construed it in their own image. The white slaves in France had risen and killed their masters and were now enjoying the fruits of the earth. It was gravely inaccurate, in fact, but they had caught the spirit of the thing. Liberty, equality, fraternity, end quote. On the 22nd of August, 1791, the slaves on the northern sugar plain of San Domingo rose up in a coordinated rebellion, sparking the Haitian Revolution. Here we should turn to that major player in these events I brought up earlier, the former slave Toussaint Louverture. Thought to have been born in 1743 and freed in 1776, Louverture was a very well-read man. Politically, he was already a Jacobin by the time of the slave revolt. It is believed that he took the name Louverture as an allusion to an anti-slavery passage in the Abbe Renal's influential encyclopedia, Philosophical and Political History of the Settlements and Trade of the Europeans in the East and West Indies, which was a major work of the Age of Enlightenment. As James describes, quotes, Toussaint alone among the black leaders, with freedom for all in his mind, was in those early months of 1792, organising out of the thousands of ignorant and untrained blacks, an army capable of fighting European troops, end quote. Likewise, it's worth bearing in mind that several key black Haitian revolutionary leaders in this period, like André Rigaud and Louis-Jacques Bouvet, had gained military experience as volunteers in the French imperial forces sent to assist the Americans in their revolutionary war against the British Empire. It's not widely spoken of now, but black French colonial subjects were enthusiastic to help the American revolutionary efforts because they could see the potential its core ideas held for black liberation in the Americas and elsewhere. To illustrate, 900 black volunteers from San Domingo were among the 1,900 French troops who retook Savannah in Georgia from the British in 1779, just over a decade before the Haitian Revolution. As you can imagine, Spain and Britain were keen to see their French imperial rivals lose a prized colony. The leadership of the slave insurgency chose to ally with Spain, which, as you might recall, controlled the eastern part of the island of Hispaniola. By 1792, the rebel slaves controlled a third of the island. In 1793, 
they forced the colonial commissioners to abolish slavery in the colony, which then sent a delegation to France to argue in favour of abolishing slavery in the whole French Empire. That same year, as part of its own war against France, Britain sent its own forces to San Domingo in what Prime Minister William Pitt the Younger called a great push to take the colony. The British seized a French fort in San Domingo in September 1793, and over the next five years would send over 20,000 men in 200 ships, which at the time was the largest military expedition Britain had ever launched. As for what the delegation from San Domingo found when they arrived in revolutionary France, although France had always had pro-abolition voices, like the Friends of the Negro Society, who by this point had been raising concerns in the National Assembly for several years, at the start of the French Revolution in 1789, the French masses were largely indifferent to the question of abolition. The intervening events in San Domingo changed all of that. As James observes, the Paris masses of 1793 to 94 felt towards the blacks, quote, as brothers and the old slave owners whom they knew to be supporters of the counter-revolution. They hated as if Frenchmen themselves had suffered under the whip. It was not Paris alone, but all revolutionary France. Servants, peasants, workers, the labourers by day in the fields, all over France, were filled with a virulent hatred against the aristocracy of the skin. There were many so moved by the sufferings of the slaves that they had long ceased to drink coffee, thinking of it as drenched with the blood and sweat of men turned into brutes." Now the French bourgeoisie faced the prospect of San Domingo falling into the hands of the First Republic's enemies, as well as the pressure of not appearing as hypocrites to the masses of France when proclaiming that all men are born free and equal. So, on the 4th of February 1794, without a debate, the National Convention passed a declaration for abolition across the whole French Empire. Quote, in consequence, it decrees that all men, without distinction of colour, living in the colonies are French citizens and will enjoy the rights guaranteed by the constitution. End quote. Upon hearing of the decree, Louverture assumed the title of General-in-Chief of the Army and led the Haitian and French forces in a long campaign to oust the British invaders. By 1798, he dealt Britain a humiliating defeat. Of the over 20,000 British troops sent to capture San Domingo, 60% died either in battle or from yellow fever. However, it was far from smooth sailing from that point. June 1799 saw an internal conflict known as the War of the Knives between Louverture and his former ally André Rigaud. Eventually, Rigaud was forced to flee, leaving Louverture as the de facto ruler of San Domingo, though still ostensibly loyal to France. In January 1801, Louverture successfully led an expedition to capture Santo Domingo, the Spanish-held side of the island, and free the slaves there. San Domingo's growing autonomy from France under Louverture's rule quickly attracted unwelcome attention. In 1799, Napoleon Bonaparte became the first consul of France. And in 1801, he sent the French army to restore colonial order, led by his own brother-in-law, Charles Leclerc. Leclerc was more than happy not only to deport Louverture, but also to wage a war of extermination 
In his own words to Bonaparte on the 7th of October, 1802, we must destroy all of the black people in the mountains, men and women, and spare only children under 12 years of age. We must destroy half of those in the plains and must not leave a single person of colour in the colony who has worn an epaulette. That same year, Bonaparte reinstated slavery in the rest of France's Caribbean colonies. But in October, rumours that France was planning to reinstate slavery in San Domingo as well sparked the black population into rebellion once more, this time for Haitian independence. In May 1802, Jean-Baptiste Brunet of the French Revolutionary Army arrested Louverture and deported him to France, ostensibly because they suspected him of plotting an uprising. Eventually, Louverture would die in prison on the 7th of April 1803, but as he boarded the frigate Creole that would take him to France, he gave a defiant warning. Quote, in overthrowing me, you have cut down in San Domingo only the trunk of the Tree of Liberty. It will spring up again from the roots, for they are numerous and they are deep. End quote. With Louverture gone, Jean-Jacques Dessalines led the Haitians in the independence struggle. The war was tough and costly on both sides, but the Haitian revolutions endured against Napoleon's forces. The French officers were taken aback by their opponents' ability and tenacity. As Leclerc wrote back home, quote, Unfortunately, the condition of the colonies is not known in France. We have there a false idea of the Negro. We have in Europe a false idea of the country in which we fight and the men whom we fight against. As James recounts, quote, the dishonest political position of the French army was now taking its toll. The soldiers still thought of themselves as a revolutionary army. Yet at night, they heard the blacks in the fortress singing the Marseillais, the Saïra, and the other revolutionary songs. Lacroix records how these misguided wretches, as they heard the songs, started and looked at the officers as if to say, have our barbarous enemies justice on their side? Are we no longer the soldiers of Republican France? And have we become the crude instruments of policy? Unquote. On at least some occasions, as the French army started to disintegrate, French soldiers switched sides, almost certainly helped by the practice Louverture had put in place, of explaining the Haitian cause to French prisoners of war. As James notes, quote, all that was needed was a highly political detachment of white Jacobins fighting in the black ranks and calling on Leclerc soldiers to come over, unquote. Similarly, there were Polish legionaries in Napoleon's army whose own experience of national oppression made them empathize with the black Haitians fighting for their freedom and led them to defects. At the Battle of Vertier on the 18th of November, 1803, Dessalines led the Haitian rebels to victory against French General Rochambeau's forces in the closing battle of the war. On the 1st of January, 1804, Dessalines declared independence, pledging that the Haitians would forever ensure the empire of liberty in the country that gave us birth. We must seize from the inhuman government that has for a long time kept us in the most humiliating torpor, all hope of re-enslaving us. We must then live independent or die. That commitment to abolishing slavery forever was enshrined in Article 2 of Haiti's first constitution in 1803. Importantly, 
Unlike the two-step approach taken by the European colonial powers and the United States, Haiti abolished slavery and the slave trade at the same time. Lamentably, the loss of colonial rule did not prevent France from finding other ways of imperialistically preying on Haiti. In 1825, France, which at this point was a monarchy again, extorted Haiti into an indemnity of 150 million francs, framed as compensation to the French colonists for lost revenues from slavery, in return for French recognition of Haitian independence. Haiti accepted France's terms under threat of war. The Baron de Macau, whom King Charles X of France had sent to deliver the ordnance, arrived in Haiti in July 1825 with 14 brigs of war carrying over 500 cannons. The debt took 122 years to pay off and was finally settled in 1947, but the decades of regular payment left the Haitian government chronically insolvent. Nevertheless, the Haitian Revolution would have major ripples throughout the Western Hemisphere. In the US, the Haitian struggle for freedom became a major point of reference for pro-abolition forces before and during the American Civil War of 1861-65. The white abolitionist John Brown, who attempted an insurrection against slavery in Virginia in 1859, was said to have patterned his life on Louverture. At the time of the war itself, the black abolitionist Frederick Douglass frequently invoked public memory of the Haitian Revolution when calling on African-Americans to join the Union Army. To tell a story closer to home for me as a Venezuelan, Simon Bolivar, the Venezuelan military and political leader of the Spanish-American Wars of Independence, was granted refuge in Haiti in 1814. Alexandre Pétuan, the first president of the Republic of Haiti, agreed to provide Bolivar with troops, weapons and ships. In return, Bolivar had to abolish slavery in the territories he liberated from Spanish rule, a promise Bolivar kept. In other words, had it not been for the Haitian Revolution, my own country's war of independence might well have gone very differently. So, to wrap things up and open the floor to discussion, I will end on a plea of sorts to remember that we should remember the Haitian Revolution precisely because it shatters the myth that slavery ended and that black liberation came about simply because of the humanitarian sentiments of those who oppressed them. On that note, thank you all for listening and I look forward to this discussion.